This is a relay project. The discourse starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Welcome to the discourse. This week we are diving deep into political communications, how it's changed, how we get our information, and whether that's helpful or harmful. So later on the show, we're going to have a political expert join us, Evan Menzies, who's uh, dedicated his career really to how to get the best message across to audiences, mostly political audiences. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately because I've watched the federal conservatives really harness the power of social media to take their messages directly to voters and and talk to them about the in the in the way that they want to be talked to and in the language that they speak themselves. But before we jump into all that, let's thank our sponsor, California Closets. Their name may be California Closets, but they offer storage solutions for your whole home, even the small spaces. Small spaces combined with big ideas make an even bigger difference. So if you're downsizing to a smaller place or just maximizing your present space, well-placed shelving, a desk under the stairs, cubbies or drawers, and hooks all create useful space and optimal organization. Developing the storage potential and purpose of a small unused space maximizes the overall efficacy of your home, making it your everything space. To learn more, visit californiaclosets.ca today. Erica, I'm, I want to pick your brain a little bit because we've both been around political campaigns um, for many years now in many political campaigns. And the way that political communication has evolved, even over the last decade, is dramatic. It is so dramatic. The way that we communicated in 2015 or 2012 is absolutely different than the way that political communications or political campaigns communicate to voters today. And that was exceptionally evident in this last 2023 campaign. So maybe just starting with you, how you've sort of seen this evolve over the last few years and what's changed. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that we've both been in politics for a long time. Um, We're really going to date ourselves. uh, And I think it was actually when Alison Redford came on the show and talked about how she launched her 2011 leadership campaign by posting on Twitter. And we were both involved in politics then and uh, we're still around. But to think that that's, you know, 13 years ago that, Twitter was like this revolutionary, new, uncertain thing. And now for a lot of us, it's actually where we get our news. It's how we keep up in in politics, where politicians are doing their announcements now. It's definitely feels like so much, especially the technology of how we communicate has has changed. Um, and I, I do think, I know you'd mentioned uh, before about how conservatives, yay us, uh, have done something wonderful um, and talked, uh, you know, started going directly. Um, I, I saw this a lot in, in our strategy in the 2023 campaign where, you know, we had the the evening broadcast and just literally like would post every night and, you know, a news segment um, where they would have conservative guests on, myself included, but Bruce McAllister would host this and just talk to our members. And it was like, no matter what you hear during the day here, you know, how the news is being spun by the mainstream media, here are the the quote unquote facts and here's the story we want you to hear. Um, I'm glad you included the quote unquote around those facts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's like, you know, you do come to it. It's like, this is the messaging that we want you to hear. Um, These are the statistics that we are using to our advantage um, to, again, not convert 
voters necessarily, but also empower the base and motivate the voter to actually get to the polls. So you see a huge shift, especially from the conservative side. And I, I think that's because as conservatives, we felt that mainstream media has been traditionally very left, not allowing us to to get our message out properly. So we've shifted to new strategies um, to get, you know, remove remove the in-between of media and just telling our stories. And I think like if I think back to 20, let's say 2015, and when you walked into a political campaign in the morning, first of all, political campaigns started a lot earlier because it was all about an earned media cycle. cycle. You come in at 6 a.m. and you're like, how are we going to make the six o'clock news? How are we going to lead the six o'clock news today? And how are we going to get the most reporters to turn out at our event? Fast forward to 2023, that is totally not the question you're asking. And that is absolutely not where you're winning the argument. And that is, you know, quite a dramatic change in over the course of, in this case, only eight years. Oh, definitely. I can think of, you know, you still try and get a morning, you know, before lunch announcement and then early afternoon so that you can make like Eastern Standard Time. But really, like, I think that's also just because it's convenient for people. You're not asking a journalist to drive out to some field uh, for, you know, and say an energy or an agriculture announcement at nine in the morning. You're doing it when it's convenient so they'll show up, but not so much on what is the deadline for for print media. And so it has shifted. And, it, and it's like, OK, so when we had earned media, it was like a, a candidate had to be busy all day. Like we wanted the news to say they went here in the morning and they went here in the afternoon and then they had a stakeholder group and then they did an announcement. And here's the feedback on that announcement in the world, in the age of social media. It's not really about being busy. It's about looking busy. So you could tape like 10 videos on a Monday morning and roll them out for the rest of the week and be like, look at all these places and people I was with a la Daniel Smith 2023. And Rachel Notley, 2023, all the time. Uh, but like, I do think, you know, they do. They wear like different outfits now. So you're doing different events, different to, to show that it's not quote like the same day. Um, it, when you were saying that, I had like this flashback to being Gary Mars EA and traveling the province with him in 2011 when he was running for PC leadership and being like, <laughs> I think I was like, early to mid 20s at the time. And I'm like, I don't understand this Twitter thing. And I would take like on my Blackberry, these like shitty pictures, like not good quality pictures, send them to someone. And I'm admitting this now, I would never do that now. Send these pictures for someone to post on my Twitter <laughs> that I like didn't manage control or anything. And I just like now think about, oh my goodness, I would never do that. But yeah, like you said, it's like, we are here real time. We are doing this. Or look at how many places we visited today where like you just don't see that in the in the same light anymore. And the picture quality is definitely better than what my BlackBerry offered in uh, 2011. Yeah. And, and honestly, it doesn't matter if it's new. It doesn't matter if it happened that day. It matters what day people see it. And that mm -hmm. every day that they're coming online, if you're if you want them to see your campaign, they're seeing great images of your campaign every day. It doesn't matter if it's uh, totally um, produced. It doesn't matter if it's a little bit faked. Not to say that we've ever done that. Um, but where's your quotations? Uh, it <laughs> I don't see your quotations when you say that or like a <laughs> wink. Didn't see those. <laughs> Some of this is just adapting, right? Like we know that people have moved away from 
a one day news cycle where it really mattered what was on at 6 p.m. to a 24 hour news cycle. And the Internet is where people who are, are, are currently getting their news. And that's what campaigns have been adapting to. It's not necessarily that campaigns have pushed this, but have actually had to adapt to it as new technology becomes available. Um, I just want to pull up because I looked before this um before this podcast about what the stats can numbers are and 80% of people now report that they get their news from the internet. And honestly, I think that's probably low because I think people like saying I get my media from X source and I don't get my media from TikTok, mm-hmm. but a growing number of people are getting a ton of information from sites like YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. And as that information that you're just sort of subliminally picking it up as you go, um, that's what sort of populating your opinions people's opinions on things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also a good plug that we're now on TikTok because we learned uh, about how many people <laughs> interact with TikTok and how how influential it can be. So the Discourse Pod is now on uh, TikTok for all of you folks. But you're right. I was thinking about it because I'm like, what do I use? One, I haven't had cable in years. So TV is not even a thing. I think most of the news um, outlets I have an online subscription for. I love the days of flipping the newspaper and, and seeing you're on A4 and like what part of the fold like I think that those days are are no longer it's no longer a benchmark that you look at for success of where your story's landing because by the time it hits someone's front steps it's almost old news but like even LinkedIn um versus Twitter how you use those and then like my my favorite of all social media is Instagram because it's like fake curated life world and everyone's like sunshines and rainbows but how you tell stories as well on all of those platforms I think is ever evolving and how you use social media differently like I used to work in media and I I will maintain that I truly do not believe that local organizations have a specific lens on an issue. Um, but I do think that if you have the opportunity to offer your message without a filter, if you have the opportunity to present your message without the opposing side, of course, political parties are going to take advantage of it. Why would I go to a reporter and ask them to tell my side of the story plus the opposition side of the story when I can just go straight to voters and tell them my story and why it's the best story. So you kind of see why as technology has evolved, political parties have moved away from talking directly to media and have instead gone straight to the customer, straight to the straight to the voter. I agree with that last point. The first one I don't agree with. And it reminds me of that time I asked you if we should have a BS a buzzer that we can call on each other. And I feel like so you would buzz tr- it now on the earth, the the, the traditional media not being left-leaning because I would argue that's I think why conservatives have shifted earlier have shifted drastically and are doing it really well right now and just you know skipping that middleman um and and I think we see that even as we see the earned media world or the traditional media um setting like the jobs that are being lost there right now people moving to what i believe is the best space ever now which is the podcast world uh versus <laughs> versus other forms um again going direct to the voter do you think that this is something that's going to stick are we you know are we going to be 10 feet or you know 10 10 minutes behind by having a podcast in 5 years and and being Probably. on tiktok so what does that mean yeah. and what does that mean for politicians like in their in their overall strategies. Yeah, we're all going to be wearing goggles and watches and information is going to be coming to us in real time. I no, no one's idea. driving. I just, <laughs> I just think technology evolves so quickly. And like I can say from having been a reporter for a decade that there was never a day where I came into the newsroom and said, how do I write a story that specifically supports one party over another? 
I will say I do think media have one bias, and that is a bias for a great story, like a, a bias where you have one side versus another side and you feel like you're presenting a story to the public where they get to make their own mind up. The downside of that is that you either only represent two pieces of the story or because great stories are made out of extreme positions, you only have the most extreme sides of the story. So you have maybe the extreme left and the extreme right and together they make a great story. And so naturally the public feels they have to align with one of those pieces and they don't get the spotlight shed on all the people in the middle who are not quite as extreme. And that's how you end up with people, you know, feeling like I have to pick a side and it's either one extreme or the other. And this one extreme aligns more with me than the other side. So not to say media is not biased at all. They are biased for a great story. But personally, having worked in the media in a local newsroom in for many years in Lethbridge, which is a relatively small market, um, I never felt like there was political oversight over, over any of the work I was doing. And, you know, I clearly am left leaning, but I wasn't political at all at the time that I joined journalism. It sounds like you're queuing up an example that we can uh, dive into. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, too, and maybe this is like behind the curtains of, of campaigns, like general elections. There's also different journalistic um, ethics or whatever you want to call it. Like there's there's requirements. So like you said, journalists are looking for a good story during an election. And maybe you can shut light on this because you did more of like you have that background and that coverage is kind of some of the rules it's like crtc where you have to cover um if someone has a story then you have to go to the other side for comment um and i think it's an over it period but then you know you have to be able to share both sides you can't just run one of those stories um am i making that up but i'm pretty sure like no, they have, yeah i can't remember exactly what the rule is but the expectation the ethical expectation is that you give equal airtime to yeah any mainstream candidate running, any any major political party running. So yeah, if there was an announcement one day, say if the UCP did an announcement one day, media would feel obligated to run something from the other side mm -hmm. as well, from the, from the NDP. And, and so I think that's why, uh, again, doing um, rapid response and, and all of the research and issues management and things like that that I did during the campaign was one of the strategies that we had was like, you had a news conference, we're going to show up at it. And then that is the strategy. And, and you guys started doing it to us. And we, we also both held conferences that were like pointing out more the other side's, you know, errors or anything like that. Um, we saw that also as another type of way during the election where it was like, well, you have to equally report on me showing up. You have to let us speak and respond to this news conference that the other side is holding. And we both kind of started playing that game as well, which is totally different than what you would have traditionally seen, um, I think, or that I've experienced prior to 2023. It was like a different tactic so that you did get that airtime as well as holding, you know, your own quote, like press conferences that might not even be talking about what you're doing, but shedding light on the other side. Well, Erica, I know you weren't in the fourth party with four members who had to do anything possible <laughs> to get into the news in 2014. But this is what we did on every single government press conference. Like, how do we get in the news? We just crashed their press conference. So it might have felt new in 2023, but we've been doing it since 2014, because when you're the fourth party, not the official opposition, even when you have four seats, you have to do you have to kind of like force yourself on the media to get coverage. And so um, yeah, we've been doing it for decades, but I, I completely agree. I say agree I'm that sorry was... that I never noticed it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where were you? <laughs> Talking, government leading things? the scrums. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a really great example of how this is playing out, and it really struck me uh, over the course of the last week. Um, there's been this growing pressure on uh, 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the federal government to address the rising crisis that is happening across the country in auto theft. And earlier this month, the prime minister announced to solve this problem, he would hold a summit to address the issue. Let's just listen to what he said. The rise over the last years has been alarming. Organized crime is becoming more brazen and the international black market for the stolen cars is expanding. The stories we hear are troubling. Len from Toronto had his stolen car located in Ghana. A vehicle from Milton was discovered on sale online in Nigeria. One family from the GTA had their SUV stolen three separate times. These cars are stolen from driveways at home, from parking lots at work, and sometimes while people are just out running errands. We're convening this summit because Canadians need serious action. A catchy slogan won't stop auto theft. A two-minute YouTube video won't disrupt organized crime. Cracking down on auto theft means bringing law enforcement, border services, port authorities, car makers, and insurance companies together. So to me, this is like the typical playbook checkbox of how you as a government address a problem. Let's put a bunch of people in the room together, a bunch of really important, credible people, and we're going to talk about the path forward to address this issue. And that might have worked a decade ago. I definitely like summit, working group, task force, working committee, let's send it to a committee. Like that is the solution of no solution. Like it's it's let's throw it and punt it down the line because we don't actually have have solutions. And and you're right, this this could have worked, but I think that there was and now is by individuals like more of a okay, but what are you doing about it? Not what are you going to talk about? And, and truthfully, even a decade ago, this is like the worst media. Like we used to call it, I think like, I can't remember what the acronym was, BOPS, like a bunch of people sitting around. <laughs> um, like it's just like the most boring, like you never want to lead a newscast with that. It's like the most boring video or pictures possible. But yet in 2024, and I think governments, you know, sometimes get stuck in these boxes where they have like a sort of a checklist of how they intend to do media and they follow it no matter what. Um, and I mean, the opposition has been demonstrating that they have the ability to really think outside the box when it comes to stuff like this. Yeah. And I definitely think like to your point, the example here is, you know, that's there's going to be this announcement by government or a talk of announcement. And then you see like before this this summit is now underway, um, the opposition, the federal uh, opposition led by Pierre Polyev, like comes out with their own video and and actually releases a strategy like it's like, hey, this isn't that hard. This is what we would do if we're government. And they kind of, you know, like took the the. Um, they took over the airways on what the prime minister was announcing, but they also took the the air out of his his announcement as a whole, because now it's like you announce nothing and we're announcing a solution and we're doing it in a creative, authentic way. Today, many people will wake up and one of the first things they'll do is look out the window, not to check the weather, but to check if their car is still there. This should not be normal for Canada. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, car thefts are up 300% in Toronto and 100% in Montreal and Ottawa. Justin Trudeau actually admitted this in a press release he put out last week. Cars have literally been stolen from people's driveways in front of their homes where they are supposed to feel safe. I'm announcing part one of our common sense conservative plan to clean up the mess that Justin Trudeau has made and stop 
car theft. One, I will increase mandatory jail time and end house arrest for career car thieves. Two, I will take on organized crime by bringing in stronger and harsher penalties for gang members involved in car theft. Three, I will repeal catch and release rules in Justin Trudeau's Bill C-75 and replace them with jail, not bail, for career car thieves. Like, I think this works, but it actually annoys me that this works. Because it's because so it's easy when you're the opposition. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if it was another party, it would still annoy me. Um, it, like, if you were the opposition and having spent time in the opposition, I know this to be true, you don't have to have a real strategy. You get to say things like jail, not bail, and that be enough for the electorate because no one is ever going to hold you accountable until you are actually in the position of governing. So I think, you know, I will I will say on this point, I think Justin Trudeau is right. Like, it's easy to sit, stand up as the opposition leader and say jail, not bail and put it into a pretty video. And it is very convincing and compelling for voters. But does it actually result in solutions or action? No, it, like it's 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 just a campaign message. So like hands off my CPP or or something like that, like doing these town halls yeah. around the province, like there's not there's really any accountability. There. Just they're just saying don't do anything, like leave CPP alone. That's an actual solution. Well, I mean, I saying jail, not fear. bail, like it's a little more complicated than that. I believe on another podcast, you said like sound bites and you were talking about like those one liners and the accountability. So I think through all of this, you've told me that I can be super annoyed by the opposition party. That's what I'm taking from, from this Feel conversation. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think you are right that it is like there is action expected from a government and action and, and as voters an expectation that there is a, a rolled out plan, not just an announcement. However, um, when you enter into an election campaign period, you're looking at both people for solutions to similar problems, right? Like take us back to 2023 and it was like affordability. Both of you had to, both mm -hmm. had to come with healthcare crisis, both had to come with solutions. And so I do think there's a time where, um, you know, both parties have to present their ways. I think that Pierre's though in campaign mode all the time and he's gearing up totally. for this. So I think his strategy, like you said, it's working. It's annoying as the government. I can say that as as I see what the NDP do to the, the UCP government um, because there is less of like fact checking or uh, how are you going to roll this out today? I actually think that's an interesting way that we're have to going to have to look at the NDP leadership race as well, because, you know, mm -hmm. you announce these policies and you're like, yeah, OK, cool. Is that applicable in three years? So something mm -hmm. else that people in their communications have to be aware of. I, I'll say I'm annoyed with it, but I think it's absolutely effective. And I think it is a great example of the federal conservatives really looking at the media landscape, deciding where their persuadable audience and where their voters are and reaching them exactly where they are in exactly the language they want to talk amongst themselves in. Um, and that is being super nimble. Like I, I will give them credit and I'll give Pierre Polyev credit for his communication. It's not my politics, but it's like it's working. And you can see in their YouTube um, videos are getting tons of clicks. It doesn't matter if the media thinks they won the day. It matters if the people online who they're trying to persuade have won the day. And I think we've seen politicians across this country start to take example or start to take advantage of this. In fact, we saw Premier Daniel Smith uh, announce what what would have been quite a controversial press conference. Um, we saw her announce sweeping policies affecting transgender access to healthcare 
on X. That was a big bunch of policies. And rather than hold a press conference and take questions from reporters, which for the record, I think she should have done, um, she got to have a clean message for one day where the the story was and the, the stuff people saw online was only what Daniel Smith wanted them to hear. The purpose of setting a tone and showing empathy, she did do, uh, for the record, like the press conference the next day where I think we did talk about how her tone was still authentic in her sharing her personal experience and connection, um, et cetera. But you are right. I mean, it is it is a strategy that we're now seeing. Um, you're seeing politicians across the board using what, you know, sound bites from parliament or from the legislature and putting those on on YouTube. Like YouTube has become the place to go and and you can go down that rabbit hole. Um, and, and I'm seeing a lot like when we when I knew we were doing this topic, started watching to see who also is like mimicking some stuff that Pierre Polyev is doing. And uh, Raquel Downcho, Michelle Rempel has always done it, like just getting on and being accessible. You see Facebook Lives going up. Um, even, I mean, when uh, Jason Kenney was the premier, he did Facebook Lives all the time. And that was, again, like getting out of their way, using new strategies to talk to to your voter. But coming back to what Premier Smith did, I mean, I think it's especially effective when you are talking about very sensitive subjects. And I'm I'm not surprised that this was was this was an approach that her her communications team and her office took, because, again, it's it's showing both sides that there's um you know, the the empathy and sympathy and that the government will continue to love all uh, Albertans while introducing these policies. And obviously there's going to be criticism from both sides, but I think it allowed for people to watch the video and come up with their own conclusions before um, what what the media um, outlined it as. And I think we're but, seeing but, politicians want to do that more because, again, if you believe that you're not going to get f- fair coverage um, or like you said, media's job is to tell a good story. Well, the good story from a media perspective wasn't Danielle Smith is completely compassionate and doing the tough but right thing. That's not going to sell newspapers like it's being anti-trans. <laughs> but it's not true. But like, but I think that like Danielle Smith, you're right. She had incredible composure. Her, her goal was to look empathetic. I think that would have been really hard to do faced with the kind of questions that reporters would have asked had she held a press conference and taken questions on it. And some of the information that would have come out of those answers wasn't necessarily the day one story that the government was looking for. So yes, it works for the government and they certainly get a specific message across, but it is a disservice to Albertans who, you know, do want to ask questions and do want to hold their leadership accountable the day that a policy comes out. So like there's a political uh, impetus for it, but the further we get down this road of politicians going straight to social media with no middleman and no accountability, the less uh, they're accountable to the voters, the less they're accountable to the to the electorate. I would actually rather have those politicians talk directly to me. My experience in watching the media, uh, I, I may be less confident in their ability to tell the the fair balance story versus the more um, page turner of a story. And so by all means, disagree with me, but I don't think it matters if it's a government or an opposition leader or a, you know, a candidate running in a in a local election. I want the elected official to speak like they're speaking directly to me, uh, you know, sitting across from me from the table. And I don't think that I would argue that that happens more when you're doing these videos 
um, whether you know you respond to every comment or not, versus being quoted in a, a news article. The piece that's missing is when Daniel Smith records a video and it goes straight to social media, that is a one-way communication. She's talking to voters. Voters don't get to ask questions. They don't get to say they disagree. They don't get to ask for clarification. Some Anything that is more controversial can either be couched in softer language or completely glossed over, which I would say was the case for this announcement. The media's job, whether they have whether they end up with the full story or whether they end up with a story that's good for their ratings, the media's job is to ask questions on behalf of the public. That's why they have always been there. They've been there to hold governments accountable, to ask questions that the public would have liked to ask because the public can't be there at every announcement, nor does it make sense for the premier to stand up and take questions from the public while she makes an announcement. That's just not possible. But the the media has always been there as a stand-in for that. And by removing that, it's not a two-way conversation anymore. It's, it's the government dictating policy to the citizens with no account I would 100% agree with you if she didn't hold a press conference the next day and take a lengthy press conference, right? I actually, um, and and again, not given the party, I I actually think if if this was Rachel Notley, I would would have this exact same position where it's like, why not let people take 24 hours to digest how it's sitting with them or what they've heard and go do their own research? I think one of the challenges that we see today is, again, getting getting one side and then coming up with your your viewpoint and sticking with that uh you and i have a podcast for that reason (laughs) but um that is exactly what that is it's just getting one side and i i think that this comes back to our views as the confidence in the the mainstream media i would argue that i don't think there was a few there was a few articles that came out saying it was a tough but the right decision and it was there was so much criticism by their colleagues on on these types of articles. So I, I don't know if I agree that I think that media does what they are intended to do, which is give fair reporting um, versus that they are a business trying to sell a business. The media in this case, Danielle Smith had her one day where she got to do her side of the story. And, you know, to give her late credit for it, she did hold a press conference the next day where she took a lot of questions. And had she started with that, it would have really changed the tone of how this was discussed on day one. But the reason that you haven't seen coverage coming out saying this is a great balanced policy is because that's not what the public discourse has been. And although maybe you feel like the media is biased, this is a reflection of the conversation that's happening. Experts have spoken out. There's been rallies in multiple cities across the province. We've had doctors saying this is the wrong decision. We have had doctors saying this is stepping on their authority. So I don't think it's surprising that the media is reflecting that. There's been polling that continues to show that most of the the mass public agrees with where the government's going. The difference is they're not screaming and shouting. They're doing it in like, we support it, we want to move through this, um, and we agree. So I don't think that, again, those tactics of the loudest wins is necessarily the the way to go. But I do think there was not a lot of coverage on all of the polling that had been done and that was released around that time saying, although a majority of Albertans agree with this, this organization, this organization, this organization has said they have concerns. I think that would have been far more fair. And I did not see that in a lot of the news articles. It was basically a copy and paste of like AMA's statement um, where an AMA organization didn't even highlight that they 
did support two of the, the the list of policies and changes the government was making. So I do think it was maybe more one-sided than was was fair. And I do think that there's always a benefit of individuals um, coming up with their their own opinion. Speaking of people coming up with their own opinion and getting in front of an issue, um, I was actually quite impressed with the strategy by um, the NDP leadership candidate um, or yeah, candidate uh, Sarah Hoffman uh, earlier this week in her her video um, that she put out. Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I'm fat, I'm sassy, and I am really bad at pretending to be something that I'm not. I grew up in a small town and I saw firsthand how conservatives harmed the school where my dad was a principal and my mom taught kindergarten. After I trained to be a teacher, conservatives tried to close a bunch of schools in my community. So I ran for the school board and I won against an incumbent trustee and then I won again. I ran for the legislature against a conservative cabinet minister and I won again and again and again. Okay, so I have to say like, this is a good strategy. Um, not like basically because she comes out and she's like, I know the criticisms of what people are going to say, how they're going to use it against me. And she's like addressed, you know, this is this is my weight. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. Um, and I'm going to be authentically myself. Um, the one thing I would say is like she's now addressed it taken the air out of the sails of her opponents criticizing her or the general public smashed it but now needs to move on um going forward in order to just not like dwell on this but i do think it was it was a great strategic move to just be like i'm just going to put it on the table so you don't talk about it yeah i uh, honestly i love this video i think sarah did such a good job on it um in addition to like kind of going straight at the criticisms that people have leveled against her fair or unfair um like it's it's a smart video it's like it's got great music it feels a little bit edgy she you know gets to run through her entire um, political career and all her success so far, kind of outline her resume. And the number one goal, I would say, of every politician in any race is to be likable. And Sarah absolutely comes across likable in this video. Again, like, I mean, I kind of <laughs> trash talked her launch of a rally because I said it was a snoreboard. This was like a 180 from that showing her like, you know, upbeat, um, way that she's going to approach this campaign. I am who I say I am. I think that's also like a underlining, you know, poke at her opponents being like, I am NDP. I'm not trying to be anything. I'm not. Here's what I've done as an NDP minister. I'm going to continue doing this because I believe in this party. I think a lot of her messages, like I'm, I'm interested to see which um, key messages she pulls out of this video and keeps using mm -hmm. uh, over and over because, I mean, as we know, people will look and see what's resonating and, and start using that. So I think not only did she <laughs> bounce back from my criticism of her launch um, announcement, I think she did create a good product and now it's like, okay, do you move on from talking about the elephant in the room and uh, moving towards like what is going to resonate and, and use this constructively as she starts almost like doing her elevator pitch or her stump speech and all of that stuff. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how she's moved through the first, you know, two weeks of, of this election campaign.
And it really did help her sort of position herself as different from the other candidates. Like we have two candidates who sort of like opened their campaigns by talking about more controversial pieces like splitting with the federal party or uh, ditching the carbon tax. Um, and Sarah really came out and did something that I think was is much needed uh, from the NDP in Alberta, which is for a long time in Alberta, we're, we're almost like apologetic for our positions. And and Sarah is saying, like, I'm a proud proud new Democrat, and I'm not going to run as anything else. I'm going to lean into the party's values, and you can elect me on that or not, but this is who I am. And I think that's really strong, not just for an NDP candidate, but for any candidate to really say, like, I stand in my values, and you can challenge me on any of it because I I truly believe all of it. Um, And I think that authenticity is what's going to get her further in the race than um, had she not done it. Oh, I definitely agree. I think, like, you know, you have these three um, MLAs currently Right. So you don't have this surprise individual yet. We're yet to see that. You have three people. It's like, what differentiates you? And she has set that tone early. Um, and, and I will say, uh, I encourage the ongoing infighting with your federal party. It is a wonderful thing. And the thing that I get to watch from the outside as a conservative is like NDP infighting because we've given you a lot of days of popcorn and watching from the outside. So I'm here for that. (laughs) And I will like take it any day of the week. But you're right. I think strategically, this is the first move in the leadership where we're starting to see the differentiation of the candidates. And Sarah definitely put herself in her own lane of of who I am and what kind of leader I'm going to run for. And she's definitely campaigning to the base um, more than what you're seeing from the other two that are growing trying to grow to the the center yeah for sure they're 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 uh the other two are really leaning into growth strategies and really i think talking to calgary um Mm -hmm. talking to calgarians who you know didn't feel politically aligned with either party in the last election or have felt politically homeless um post or after the election trying to grow and say there's a place for everybody here sarah's saying like we are exactly who we are. And if you align with us, you can come with us too. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's, they're both aimed at the same thing, but definitely different strategies. Yeah, we'll definitely see. And I cannot wait to continue talking about a leadership race that doesn't have to do with something I hold a membership in. We now welcome Evan Menzies to the show. And although he has a long history in conservative politics as the communication director with the Wild Rose and then the uh, director of communications with the United Conservative Party, um, he now works to help all clients of all industries and all sides get their message out and clear to the audience that they're communicating with. Uh, I will say, Cheryl, we don't usually have things in common, but you and I have both worked against Evan in uh, in the trenches of politics when I was in the PCs. It was a long time ago because Evan and I have now worked on the same team for quite some time, but that is something that we have in common. He was both an enemy of ours at one point. So welcome to the show, Evan. Yeah, happy to be with a couple of communications titans here. I mean, we have both been around politics for a long time. Um, and I think 2014, we worked in the same lovely annex building together and across the hall from each other doing the work of of opposition. Um, in your time in politics, how have you seen, because this is what we've been talking about, the way that commu- political communication has evolved. How have you seen political communication evolved over over your career in politics? Yeah, you know, back when I started uh, was actually just when uh, Danielle Smith was, uh, was getting her uh, start in politics uh, with the Wild Rose. Um, political communications was really focused on a pretty simple formula, get your press release out, get involved in the media cycle. 
Um, email lists were there and active to communicate with your supporters. Uh, but Facebook, uh, getting your Twitter following up, it was still pretty nascent and, uh, and getting started. Whereas uh, from then to now, how you build your communications playbook, let's say around a policy announcement from government, or uh, if you had like a, a freedom of information uh, request that you wanted to release as the opposition or any kind of document, you build your communications and rollout plan completely different than from how you would have done it back then, which was hoping that you'd have a successful press conference, um, kind of crossing your fingers that you were able to frame it the right way for the media and you get some favorable press stories. Uh, now, as a political party and, and political operations, you have a lot of ability to control the message to make sure that your own supporters and your own support network hear your message first. You mentioned communication strategy, and I just want to kind of dive into that a little bit. Can you tell us, like in 2024, when you're thinking about how to get a message out and how to connect with your people, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I would do, uh, I, I think a trap that a lot of uh, folks in still in political communications, communications in generally, in general, is thinking that uh, a press release and a press conference is uh, is the full package, and uh, if you were able to tick off both of those boxes, that was just, that that could be a success. Uh, for me, that's that's just one component. Uh, I I go through several pieces. You need to think of your social media communications. Uh, do I have a dynamic video? Do I have graphics to back it up? And then I'd also consider: Is this something that we need to put paid ad dollars behind to make sure that the message? Uh, not only hits that for that first day, but that we can continue to amplify that message for several days after uh, to make the make the news uh, last longer than just a, a 24 hour period. And then you have a, a lot of political parties, but a lot of non-political parties too. a lot of entities have their own emailing lists. How do you communicate with those members and make sure that they're up to date? And so there's several different channels to keep in mind. And there's different considerations to keep in mind with all of them. One of the audiences, if you're talking to the media, will be different than the audience uh, that you need to consider when you're talking to your own supporter network. Uh, I can think of, for example, with the NDP right away, if they were to hold a press conference on something, um, probably not a secret to them, but I am on their mailing list. And so <laughs> I will expect to see hours later. I'm going to tell them. Much more. <laughs> yeah. It's not his real email account. We all um, do but, it. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I would expect to see um, not too long after a much more fired up, flared up message designed to get me to sign a petition and get involved in a, in a donation track. So I want to jump in on on you talked about social media and I'm you know, I'm kind of hearing what you're doing over at Crestview Strategies with building out those those full campaigns. Can you think of an effective social media campaign that you have seen recently or that you you know kind of worked on or we, that we saw in 2023 that you saw was being effective and really helped carry the narrative, uh, regardless of if media was was on side and telling that same story? Yeah, I mean, I, I think of a couple of recent examples, um, both I think are both prominent um, on, on both the federal and provincial scene where social media was used by um, not just in a campaign format, but uh, just to use to make an announcement. Um, first off, I think Pierre Paglia federally, he's done several video series, which have been extremely effective. They're intimate, they're simple communications pieces. Uh, one of them was actually done uh, just out the street. Um, a little um, thing I like to brag about was that Pierre's uh, grew up in the same neighborhood I did. And so he's walking down the street talking about, here's why I grew up, here's my family, and here's why housing prices are out of, out of control. And I think... It's one of those one of those social media campaigns where, um, anecdotally, I could sit on a bus uh, going to work and I could hear someone talking about the video the next day, and that's just a, a an ability. That's just something that didn't exist ten years ago. Um, I, 
obviously over a pretty hot and contentious topic, but it was interesting to note that when um, Premier Daniel Smith announced her uh, policy on, on pronouns uh, a few weeks ago, she did it through social media first. Uh, she did it on a, a carefully crafted video uh, that she could create and make sure that the message was controlled. And so that the first impression that people got was watching the video content um, and not necessarily um, seeing press questions about the policy, which was also interesting to watch just to see how um, Premier Daniel Smith and her communications team wanted to approach that topic. That makes me think of something I've noticed a lot, Evan, lately, in the, in, especially in political uh, videos, whether they're paid or, or owned online. Um, but it used to be that people had such a short attention span for these kind of videos that they kind of had to be like 30 seconds, 15 seconds before people lost interest. And we've really seen a move toward much longer form content. Um, Pierre Pauliev, although it's not my politics, his communications is incredible. I know exactly what video you're talking about. It's four and a half minutes long. And many people, conservatives or not, watch the whole thing. So what's your take on this new renewed interest in more information is better? Yeah, I, I think it speaks to authenticity. I, I, consumers are, are smarter. And I, I think um, like I can track almost from my own experience on this as well, um, both in, uh, working for in politics and for corporate and nonprofit clients that before you wanted to feel really safe and, and uh, the, the production was, was crisp and you didn't want anything to look too off. And so the, the clips that were put together were short. It would, it's a lot of work for a person to put together a four minute video and recording. Um, some politicians are, are more uh, able than others, but getting someone to do a clean two minute take is actually pretty tough. And so some of that might have been simplicity. But I think voters can see right through that. Consumers can see right through that. They want to see the real deal. They want to. They want to see substance and what their leaders are offering. Um, it, you know, in, in a press conference, for example, or you're doing a, a let's say a, an evening news hit, you might have folks in our business will talk about making sure that you have your your talking points and your key message sound bites ready. Um, a lot of consumers and voters want to hear a little bit more behind the, beyond those like simple sound bites okay what's 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 the evidence you have for that claim what's the solution how could that practically make my life better and so i, I think politicians uh in any capacity or or corporate leaders or anyone being able to uh kind of remove that veneer uh, up front and get and, and allow people to see like the real authentic message the real authentic self and see see actual substance uh i think you know people crave that so I heard you say authenticity and, you know, I think that there is this balance, especially when it's not earned media, there's not that third party, you know, validator or fact checker before getting your message out. Um, can you maybe talk about, you know, when you're assessing these strategies, that trust or that authenticity you want to come uh, along with, but we also have a lot of consumers that, like you said, are very intelligent and finding that balance between trust and like the manipulated, manipulative tone that, um, false falsehood through these types of um, mediums could allow. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of items there, and so uh, maybe I'll start on the, the second part about um, kind of being on your guard or, or how to watch with some of those manipulative you know, tones that you mentioned. Um, first of all, like if, as a consumer, it, <laughs> it's something to to be aware of that. Uh, I mean, part of the success in, in in modern politics and for for other groups or for other advocacy groups is that um, all the algorithms out there are they're very sophisticated you, you'll hear the word algorithms quite frequently they're very sophisticated robots who know how to give you content that you want and that uh, you'll really engage with 
And so it's something just to be aware of as a consumer as well, that um, the algorithm that there's, there's robots out there who are giving you content. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's good content or that it's uh, substantive content or that it shouldn't be reanalyzed. And so, um, you know, as all consumers have an obligation to uh, be able to sort of verify and fact check and, and go through and maybe, maybe go through to another source uh, on maybe not your side of the spectrum to see like, okay, what are they saying? How does that match up? Um, and then as far as on the front end being a presenter, um, I, I think being aware that you're going to get fact checked really fast and really quick if, if you're not putting out substance. And, it, uh, you know, I, on X, I'm sure everyone's noticed community notes. It's, uh, it's one thing that you want to avoid is being able to be quickly fact checked. There's always a bit of a fact check battle, no matter what, between partisans, you know, there's, it, it sounds overly postmodern post and subjective. Partisans will always have a different version of the, the truth, but making sure that you have actual substance cognitive claims that can be validated and can be um, footnoted on your video almost is, is super important. And, and Evan, this is something, honestly, that keeps me awake at night because not everyone uses social media or the internet for good. And this could be political movements. Uh, I'm not necessarily, you know, t calling out a political party here for, for crossing this line. But we've seen in the States where the internet, where you get sort of like down a rabbit hole and you're suddenly in this echo chamber where you believe that everyone agrees with you and conspiracy theories are a great example of this. Like how far is too far? And do you think there's a breaking point somewhere where the internet just, you know, pushes public discourse to a far more divisive place than we can handle? Yeah, I think one of the challenges with uh, modern communications, and I, I don't think we can um, put the toothpaste back in the tube on this one necessarily, but we 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 get vastly more siloed uh, with the way uh, these algorithms work. Um, I, I do it myself. I curate my news online just to filter out content that I just find irritating or um, might provide an opposing view that I just I'm like I only. I can only be cranky about so many things in a day. And so <laughs> I'm going to curate the way that I, the way that I like, but it's, it is obviously a problem. Um, it, I mean, it, I always, I always want to reference when we're having these conversations too, that uh, the national Enquirer and the weekly world news sold uh, like hotcakes off newsstands. And so there's always, there's always, there will always be people who kind of crater an alternative feed on the news. Um, and it might not necessarily be the most accurate form of the news. So, but I, 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 I think the biggest frustration in that is that people get in these styles or maybe they get reaffirmed that this is the actual take. And it, I think as consumers, as, as voters, as people involved in democracy, we owe it to ourselves to make sure that our information sources are varied. And uh, I'm not going to validate one source over another. That's, that's not my place, nor do I think I have the authority to say that, but I think um, as consumers, we order to ourselves to actually be involved in debate and talk and uh, challenge ourselves with uh, resources and uh, information sources that may make us cranky or we might say that's nonsense, but um, it's good to have that as a validation point. But I, I and if, if I could be a bit of a uh, take up, be a, be a bit of an oxygen bag here. Um, the other point that I would say is that I, I do think um, it's a challenge for media now in Canada to make sure that what we call mainstream media, that there are a lot of um, partisans on, on my side of the aisle, but I, I think on the left side of the aisle too, where they don't feel like the story is being told straight or their, their voice is being heard. And so I, as media is going through its struggle right now with, um, with funding and budget cuts that they're facing, 
that's just another sort of um, wrinkle to this is how what roles do traditional media play in in, in this sort of evolving media framework. I'm going to call it another wrinkle, and that is uh, the role of government, especially the federal government uh, in this space. So I think, you know, we've heard a lot over censorship bill in the past, C-11. There's now conversations that it's going to be called like, I mean, this government keeps trying to rebrand their their bills and thinking that that's going to help. But um, like an online harms bill. Uh, which, you know, you can expect is coming forward. Can you maybe talk about like the role of government in in online and uh, media space and and where you see this going in, in a helpful or harmful way? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't surprise you, Erica, to hear that I'm genuinely suspicious of, of government intervening in the space um, in, in any capacity. Uh, one thing that I'm fearful of is when the government uses sort of a bit of a heavy boot on uh, speech of any capacity that, um, people won't react with compliance. They'll react with anger. And, and I think, um, you know, when we talk about conspiracy, um, they'll be, they'll more readily turn to alternative news sources if, if, if there's a government point of view and then there's other point of views. And so just using that as a framework, I, I'm, I'm genuinely, I, I, I don't think what the federal government has put forward to date or has been advancing is super productive or helpful. Um, you know, we look at that uh, bill uh, with regards to uh, giving new, trying to get news or Facebook to find news. What ended up happening was Facebook just said, no, I'm, we're out. This is too complicated. Uh, this is too, there's too much regulatory oversight on this. Uh, we don't know uh, how much cost overrun we'll have. We're just out. And now on Facebook, Canadians can't really debate the news anymore. It's, uh, we're one of the only jurisdictions in the world where that's the case. Uh, on these online harm bills, I, I think the conversation needs to be directed around um, where where are areas where the criminal code can be violated and how can we give more resources to make sure that in areas where someone's at a, a threat of violence or their personal security is at threat, how do we improve those protections? But when we get into the realm of um, more political speech, um, the government has to be very careful because I think it, it, it creates more suspicion, more tension in society as opposed to... Um, trying to heal some of those rifts. Amazing. Well, thank you, Evan, so much for joining us today. Uh, Evan Menzies works for Crestview Strategies as their senior strategist. Uh, he's been in the trenches against Bill Sherrill and I. I've had the opportunity to be on his team more than not, uh, which is also helpful because he's an expert in this political space. And Evan, you can let us know when or how, what next social media uh channel we have to sign up for for the discourse to stay relevant because uh, we just joined TikTok. Still trying to get Cheryl to do some dances with me so we can go viral, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But Evan, thank you so much for, for joining us. Your insights were, were really helpful for us today. You bet. Good luck on TikTok. <laughs> Thanks. And that's our show for today. You can find new episodes every Thursday morning. And please like and subscribe to YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Barudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.